Hi guys, today we have a very special guest. He is Mr. John Entine from the Genetic Literacy Project. Uh, John Entine is an American author and journalist and the executive director of the Genetic Literacy Project. He is also a senior research fellow at the Institute for Food and Agricultural Literacy at the University of California. He is the author of seven books including Let Them Eat, Precaution, How Politics is Undermining the Genetic Revolution in Agriculture, Crop Chemophobia, Will Precaution Kill the Green Revolution, and Scared to Death, How Chemophobia Threatens Public Health. Before becoming a print journalist, John Entine was a producer and executive for 20 years at NBC News and ABC News, winning 20 journalism honors, including a National Press Club Consumer Journalism Award and Emmys for specials on the reform movements in China and the former Soviet Union. He was also the head of documentaries and Tom Brocco's longtime producer at NBC News. So, Mr. John Entine, how are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for having me on your program. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really a fan of the Genetic Literacy Project, so it's really a, a pleasure to have you here with us today. Okay. Thanks. Should we tell, tell people a little bit about what the GLP is so they understand that? Yeah, that would be the first question, so please yeah, I, the, um, uh, it focuses on, it's a website, uh, but uh, it's also a nonprofit. Uh, the website focuses on news um, about uh, biotechnology and genetics, uh, human, things like gene editing of humans, uh, designer babies, the dispute and embryo um, uh, uh, iterations just to help uh, remove diseases, uh, but it also gets into the agricultural genetics debate, the so-called GMO debate, which is um, really a debate between industrial agriculture and other forms of agriculture. It's very heated and there are very important issues about sustainability. Um, but other than, rather than being just a news site, we try to um, take it from a policy and a media angle. What's really being said when, when news reports come out? What are NGOs and corporations doing to manipulate, uh, or in some cases, um, uh, twist the truth. So we're really trying to get to the news behind the news. And so our obligation, our responsibility is really to train um, viewers, uh, readers, um, people that we outreach to, uh, policy uh, people, scientists, on how to interact with the media and how to tell their story about how they see the science. We really don't have a, um, a scientific line. Our subline, our subheading is um, science, not ideology. So we want a vigorous debate uh, because a lot of these <clears throat> issues are quite complicated. Mm -hmm. Great. So, and what drew you to genetics in particular among all the sciences? Uh, it was really a personal experience. Uh, I was athletic and growing up and uh, followed sports and was uh, grew up during an era when um, American, <coughs> excuse me, American basketball uh, American um, football, um, not soccer, obviously, football, uh, and baseball became um, uh, overrepresented by people of uh, African ancestry, specifically people of West African ancestry, African Americans, people from the Dominican Republic, places like that. And it was an amazing phenomenon, almost from, from my early ages when it was close to zero to 15 years later, the NFL was 80% 
uh, black and the NBA was 85 to 90% black. And it seemed like an interesting cultural phenomenon, but I suspected it was more. And there were a number of developments um, in genetics that began to emerge in the late 1980s. And Tom Brokaw and I, uh, Tom was a the well-known um, anchor for NBC News said, we really need to discuss this issue. It's becoming a major issue, a topic of conversation. There were a number of incidents that happened involving it. And and uh, he asked me to do a story. I initially declined. I thought it was a career killer, um, but then agreed. And we ended up doing a documentary um, called Black Athletes, Fact and Fiction. And it was a huge award winner, won best um, international sports film um, of the year in 1989 and uh, launched me into a career of looking into genetics and ultimately led to my first book um, on the same subject but expanded and greatly uh, called Taboo, Why Black Athletes Dominate Sports and Why We're Afraid to Talk About It. Mm-hmm. And from then it was, genetics became a major focus. I just saw the opportunities and now going forward, I think the pillars of our economy over the next um, decades will be based on biotechnology and genetics, innovation in medicine particularly, but also in agriculture. Mm, that's a really interesting story there. So, and to, uh, for just for people who don't know about it, could you please explain uh, what is a gene and why shouldn't people fear genetic manipulation, either when it is applied to other organisms or to humans? Well, a gene is just uh, a, a, a way that we carry, we, we carry traits that we all have, whether it's blue eyes or hair color or uh, muscle structure. Um, uh, a, any trait that we have is a combination of how our genes are what it's called expressed. Um, because you can, some people can share certain genes, but there are other factors, some of them environmental, and some of them other genetic factors that express genes in certain ways so the traits um, are realized in different, in different ways. So for instance, two identical twins are not totally identical because some of their genes have been expressed differently even though they have identical genes. And you can actually see um, some of those differences and actually you, uh, surely you can do tests and, and understand that there are differences as well. Um, so we are really coming to an understanding of, of how, how our body works how genetics um, um, leads to various traits. And I think that the, the, the main reason we are looking into this is because of disease issues. Um, we have a variety of diseases. Look at Huntington's disease as an example. If you have the mutation, um, a bad gene, a mutation, uh, well, mutations can be good or bad, but a bad mutation uh, that, that causes Huntington's disease, you will get that disease and you will die. You will die in your, in your 40s. There is a 100% chance that you will die. Now, if you get other genes, like there's uh, a range of genes called the BRCA genes, the breast cancer genes, um, you don't have a 100% chance of getting breast cancer. Those genes are mitigated by other gene relationships and by environmental factors as well. There are only a few genes that, that literally dictate how you will be. Almost all the genes that we have are modified through gene-gene interactions and um, and, and environmental factors, which makes this very, very complicated, very fascinating, but very important because we we are all most of the um, diseases that we have are genetic have a genetic basis to them, and but we are now at the point where the major factor in causing those diseases, like a breast cancer mutation or a Huntington's disease mutation, can be identified, and through precise gene editing, 
that is so simple, it can actually be done by a high school student. That's how advanced we are in some of this technology. They can go in and remove that mutation in an embryo and that uh, newborn will not have that disease. Now, this is not approved yet because we want to make sure that when we start removing single gene mutations that we don't cause a series of other um, unknown um, uh, um, interactions that we just have no idea what might happen. So we want to be cautious about this, but the tests that have been done in animals and in some cases using gene therapy um, helping humans has been remarkable so far and the future looks extremely bright in the medical area. Um, is it something to be fearful of? No. Is it something to be cautious about? Should we monitor it? And should we also factor in maybe religious or ethical considerations depending upon where you're from? Absolutely. But it's not something to fear. Mm -hmm. And because it is one of the major topics at the Genetic Literacy Project, uh, could you explain a little bit uh, how does biotechnology work when applied to GMOs and why are we not creating food which is harmful to us when we use this approach? Well, there's, um, I, there's many, many different ways to modify food. First of all, none of the food that we eat today existed a few hundred years ago and some things are really utter creations. For instance, I'm not sure if you're a fan uh, or even ever have uh, ruby red grapefruits, sweet grapefruits. Have you ever had a sweet grapefruit? Well, you may not know, know this, but that was created by subjecting the seeds of grapefruits to radiation over a period of seven years, creating random mutations until ultimately a random mutation appeared that, that, that led to a, um, a sweet grapefruit. Now you can go into your organic store and buy your radiated seed um, that creates an organic grapefruit and no one says boo. They think, oh, that's fine, that's an organic fruit. But it was really created artificially. Um, we have hundreds of, 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 uh, of plants uh, that were created by um, radiation or chemicals. Uh, we have lots of plants that are created by cross-breeding. None of these would ever occur in nature, and yet we buy them and they can be sold as organic food. Um, about 30 or 40 years ago, we started realizing that we could actually, um, rather than spending eight years radiating seeds and then planting them and kind of seeing what would come up, really just hit and miss, that we could actually find genes that we knew had certain traits and breed for them. And um, that started the, the, the GMO revolution back in the 1980s, and the first products were approved um, in the 90s in the United States. And we precisely identified single genes that would um, be able to affect a change. Some, sometimes the, the change would be, for instance, um, we, there, there's, there are a number of plants, um, cotton, um, soybeans, and some other plants. Uh, Bangladesh had, has... Um, uh, brinjal, which is eggplant, uh, and, and they, a natural bacteria that, that is used by organic farmers, they spray this to control insects, has been inputted into these plants and it naturally expresses itself. Again, it's something found in nature. This isn't made in a lab uh, and, and it, it repels pests and they don't have to spray. Um, so you, you, organic farmers have to spray People who use GMO, um, BT, uh, Brinjal in Bangladesh have saved literally thousands and thousands of lives and cut um, health problems down dramatically because that's such a key plant. But there's many, many um, people who are critical of the fact that that 
that, that, that bacterium was not natural to that brinjal. And they say, oh my God, we're changing nature because we're putting something from one species into another species. And so they say, this isn't natural and anything that's not natural, we shouldn't do. That, the train has left the station on the natural issue a long time ago. I mean, the, the issue that I just told you about, um, uh, about grapefruits, I think illustrates that very, very well. Nothing is natural. Um, the question is, how do you define natural? Um, and we also know that genes are um, very flexible. Uh, pluripotent is, is the word that we use. One of the reasons that stem cell surgery works, stem cell therapy works, is because you could take amniotic stem cells and um, it's, it, it hasn't yet differentiated into, into what they are. And you could take amniotic stem cells and put it into a certain part of the body and it, and it becomes that part of the body. It, it actually, um, uh, because every gene in it uh, has all the genes that we have in our entire body. So we basically can um, move them around in the body and as they, as they express themselves, they can become one thing or another. So the idea of foreign genes doesn't exist. Humans are 30%, share 30% of our genes with marigolds. Um, we share 60% of our genes with worms. Um, so we're not part worm, we're not part marigold, even though we share the same genes. So we, people have to misunderstand that. So, that, But that scared a lot of people, and they said, we don't want unnatural things like GMOs. But now we're moving into a new generation called gene editing, CRISPR. People have heard the term CRISPR. In CRISPR, um, rarely, sometimes but rarely, do you actually move genes from one species to another. You just work within the genetic um, uh, structure that exists. It's very similar to what nature does. Um, and so now we have things like um, uh, apples that don't brown so fast. We have potatoes that don't bruise so easily. We have mushrooms that don't bruise and brown so easily and go bad. Um, these were approved by uh, agencies in different countries because um, it mimics exactly what nature does and there's no um, genes being moved from one species to the other. So many of the um, debates, many of the concerns focused at GMOs, um, you'd think uh, that that debate would be over and it would disappear, but the opponents of GMOs, um, after focusing almost solely on the issue of, of, uh, of using foreign genes, have now switched their debate and say, oh no, we just don't like any gene changes at all. And now they're against gene editing, even though it's really exactly what's going on in nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and in what ways are GMOs superior to conventional and organic farming? Well, um, there's all kinds of farming are necessary. It really depends on the conditions and where you are and what your goals are. If you live in a, a small town in Portugal and, um, and you don't have access to a lot of chemicals, uh, and you have some natural chemicals that you can get um, uh, that are available, it may be better for you in, in that town to, to use something that's closer to organic or conventional that, that is not GMO. That might be better for you in that situation. But we have to look at the bigger picture, which is that we have nine, uh, well, we'll soon have nine and a half billion to 10 billion people on the earth. We're already at max capacity in terms of land use. Um, organic agriculture, uh, agroecological uh, farming has about a 40% um, yield lag. 
you, you're not going to be able to fill those people using organic farming. So you have to use the, the most advanced techniques. Plus, you want to use techniques that are the most ecologically sustainable. Many of the organic techniques are just not ecologically um, sustainable. For instance, um, GMO plants, certain GMO plants, that if they're, if they're herbicide resistant, you only have to put one application of an herbicide, maybe two, uh, on uh, the plants, and you don't have to till the soil um, to get the weeds out because the weeds just die uh, and they don't even emerge. But uh, organic farmers have to do tilling all the time. People not, may not realize that, but that tilling releases carbon. It's one of the single biggest contributors to carbon pollution in the world. Organic farming is very, um, from a greenhouse gas perspective, if we're concerned about global warming, organic farming is a terrible, terrible choice. It's much, much less sustainable than, um, than intensive agriculture. So there's all these trade-offs. It's what's the situation? What are your goals? Um, some cultures will choose organic farming, GMOs, and, the, and gene editing crops have a lot of um, new advantages. They can be nutrition efficient. Uh, we have uh, a golden rice that's developed in the Philippines and is going to be introduced in Bangladesh, uh, probably in Bangladesh this year. That has um, it's vitamin A enhanced. We have them so that they're disease, so that they're um, resistant to climate change issues, both drought and um, flooding. Um, and all kinds of potential benefits are there. It's really endless because you can introduce so many traits on it. So it's a matter of um, making sure that we're doing things in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a realistic way, that we're monitoring what's going on. But the potential for GMOs far eclipses organics, which is really a 100-year-old um, technology. It has its benefits in limited situations, but it's not going to be able to deal with a world of 10 billion people when we actually have to shrink the agricultural footprint, not increase the agricultural footprint. Mm -hmm. And due to those traits, would you say that GMOs alongside other um, new uh, farming technologies that we have, for example, hydroponics and even eventually aeroponics, could be a te a, the best technology that we have right now to help fighting climate change and environmental degradation? Absolutely. I agree with you. I mean, we have to be... I think climate change is one of the uh, major issues uh, facing us. As you mentioned, hydroponics, aeroponics, where you grow uh, things in the air. Um, there's a big fight in the organic community. Um, even though these things are more sustainable than anything being done in organics or conventional intensive agriculture, um, they don't want the organic label attached to it um, because uh, they're afraid it's going to usurp what is a, a technology that's really 100 years old. Um, and they fought it, but in the United States, um, hydroponics was just approved as a organic, but in other countries, I think it won't, and there's a united effort to, to dismiss that. So it's becoming ideological now, unfortunately. My goal um, is to promote sustainable agriculture. Um, uh, uh, you know, there's a debate on how we get there, and there's no question that there's certain practices um, used in intensive agriculture that if misused can um, not be sustainable. But, you know, we need all hands on deck here. Um, the idea of demonizing um, GMOs or demonizing gene editing and taking it off the map for, let's say, Africans to use because they're too scared of it or because um, they want to trade with Europe and Europe is against it and they're afraid of um, pissing off 
and and creating trade problems with their with their major agricultural trade um, uh, countries is really a shame. We need an we need the floor needs to be open and let the best technologies emerge. The beauty of gene editing too is that it's so uh, precise and so able to be done uh, at at even a um, high school and college level that um, uh, we are going to have we have entrepreneurs that are going to be coming up. And, and developing these technologies, and it won't be owned by big big ad. Um, it, it really um, means the democratization of agricultural innovation, and that's got to help everyone. It really breaks the strangle of large um, agri agrochemical companies. Mm -hmm. And you already talked a little bit about this topic here, but you also espouse the application of biotechnology via manipulation of the human genome. Uh, in what ways do you think humanity could benefit from genetic enhancements and that w you would also consider ethical? I'm asking this because sometimes people refer to the possibility of someone that is very rich profit from a, a technology like CRISPR to enhance uh, his children' uh, um, intelligence and things like that and that it would contribute to increase uh, inequality among people, for example? Yeah, these are very, very important questions. And um, that's why some groups, both on the political left and on the political right, have really said we should not do any human embryo gene editing um, because they believe, although they see the possibility for the good, which is to eliminate um, certain diseases or dramatically reduce certain diseases, um, the possibility is that it could be used eugenically um, to, let's say, make your kids smarter or, um, you know, make their eyes prettier or make them taller. And, um, and then maybe someone wants to make their kid more muscular. And suddenly things get out of whack. The body could maybe not um, uh, handle all these kinds of changes. And we have a society of people competing eugenically to try to make the best kids. And who will win that? win that contest, the rich, the rich will win it, um, but it also is a technology that could spin out of control and be used by people for nefarious reasons. So to be concerned both ethically and religiously about these issues is important. Um, we need human embryo manipulation um, is something that needs to be fully aired and debated. Um, we, we will set limits on things. But I have to say, in this day and age where this technology is so easy, I am doubtful that any of those limits will hold. Uh, we can pass all the laws that we want, saying we don't want to manipulate people for intelligence, but the technology is, is becoming so straightforward. Within a decade, we could probably end up doing this, and no one would know. Um, you know, All you need is a rogue laboratory in, in any number of countries, whether it's China or um, other Asian countries or Latin America or frankly even Portugal or the United States people could conceivably do this um, So this is a heated debate. We are in the early stages of trying to understand the implications of changing and manipulating the human embryo I think there's a general consensus um, That we want to do it because we want to resolve and address some of the most serious diseases um, And gene therapies are focused on that right now gene editing is focused on that but we are proceeding extremely cautiously right now. But um, I think events will overtake the caution, unfortunately. This will almost certainly um, spin out of ethical control. Um, I don't, 
you can't ban something like this. It just is. Uh, it's too easy to do. It it will it will happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we really have to be careful about that. Uh, do you think that chemophobia arrives not just from propaganda and sometimes bad journalism, but also from human natural proclivities to fear, in this case, something that uh, our senses can't even grasp? Oh, absolutely. Uh, chemophobia, if, if your audience is not familiar with it, is just a, a fear of chemicals and... and I think we have a lot of fears. Um, the whole concept of of, um, of being scared and what we're scared of and why we're scared of it is is fascinating. And it, 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 the concept in science terms is is understanding risk. What really causes risk? What can actually harm us? Um, and we we're, we're we're funny people. We drive around in cars all the time, and riding around in cars is one of the riskiest things that you can do. The number of people who die is quite high, um, and we very few people get anxious um, getting into a car. Uh, although we do hear about catastrophic uh, airline flights, including one in um, uh, Russia just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, flying is much safer than uh, driving a car, but people uh, get hyperventilate. Many people won't fly. Why? Because it's the, the, the illusion that you can control your risk while driving, but when you're flying, you can't control your risk. Um, so that's one of the things that distinguishes how we react to various things. So chemicals in our food is a fascinating issue. Um, we have done enough testing over the years that we're pretty familiar with what level of chemicals um, might cause um, any kinds of conceivable health problems. In the United States and in Portugal and other countries, we usually set the um, dose limits um, about 100 to 1,000 times um, more, uh, a safety zone, 100 to 1,000 times greater than what we see um, even um, overuse of, of any kind of chemical, overexposure of any kind of chemical to a person. So the um, safety factors are enormously large. And even if you were at, that, at the edge of that safety factor, um, that's only showing that 50% uh, of rats might have some kind of um, um, reaction to it. So the factors are really, really large. And yet we see all the time in the press, um, uh, very popularly in the United States, for instance, we have something called the Environmental Working Group, which puts out every year a list of what they call the dirty dozen fruits and vegetables, which they claim are dangerous. Well, every one of those, the chemical residue and traces on them are hundreds to thousands of times below what science has been able to determine um, could cause any harm at all. So they pose no dangers at all, and yet they sell them as scary, and they say, oh, people should go buy organic food. Well, organic foods, they don't test for organic chemicals, and they're, they're over a hundred organic chemicals that are approved. Some of them are carcinogenic. So first of all, they're not even testing for chemicals that are on organics. But more than that, what they're doing is getting people who are poor 
or don't have the economic wherewithal to buy more expensive food, to skip perfectly safe conventional food and buy something that's two or three times more expensive under the illusion that they're protecting the health of themselves and their children. And this is really a scam that's developed, but it's developed because we don't understand risk. And it's really, really hard for people to get their head around what is risky and what is just a potential risk. But I mean, for instance, alcohol is risky. If you drink 150 glasses of wine every single day for a year, I guarantee you that you have a very good likelihood of getting cancer. If you drink 150, coffee has 29 different carcinogens in it, carcinogens in it, but it also has some actually good things in it. Just because it's carcinogenic doesn't mean we shouldn't drink it. We drink it at levels that are far below what could be dangerous. So people love coffee, so they don't exercise the same thing. But when it comes to agricultural chemicals, they they lose that same ability to be discriminating and are suddenly um, uh, overreact. And unfortunately, private um, uh, nonprofit groups, NGOs um, that have an ideological agenda, take advantage and exploit those fears. Yes. Uh, and just before we finish, you work on trying to promote literacy in all of these issues. What means do you think could we apply to further educate people on these subjects? Well, one thing I'm, I'm doing and what we're doing is trying to get at the, at the level where rubber meets the road. And there are two places. One, for instance, we're speaking at a, um, at a number of uh, dietary and nutrition uh, uh, programs where school nutritionists and dietitians are there. They're the ones who are bringing information and educating people at the junior high and high school, primary school level, um, and, and giving them the facts about these things. And, if, and there's a lot of myths. They're just people, too, and they react to the same um, scare tactics that anybody else reacts to, even when they have an education. Most of them don't have PhDs, though a few do. Um, and we really need to bring these issues to the level of where people are beginning to form and make decisions. We, of course, need to have information sources like the GLP, but we also need to get to policy leaders as well. So we're focusing some of our efforts on um, uh, going to Washington, D.C., going to European centers like Brussels and elsewhere, and trying to um, educate them so that they don't overreact. Um, Sometimes they get pressure from campaigning NGOs, nonprofits, that create a scare aura around chemicals or GMOs or promote uh, organic food at the expense of conventional agriculture. Uh, and I think this is really distorts the kind of information out that's out there. But laws are passed based on this. This is actually going on right now in Europe where they're on the verge of banning glyphosate, which is a very mild um, uh, agricultural herbicide it has the toxic level equivalent to to human salt and they're going to ban that but they just re-upped a a, uh, chemical called copper sulfate which is natural it's copper uh, and it's used mostly by organic farmers and it's one of the most carcinogenic chemicals out there it's been recommended to be banned by the european food safety authority and that sailed through and glyphosate, which the European Food Safety Authority says is not carcinogenic and is perfectly safe because of political reasons, may get banned. So we have to educate politicians so they can stand off uh, pressure from nonprofits who don't respect science. 
Mm -hmm. Okay, so Mr. John Entine, it was a pleasure to have you here with us today and I would like to thank you for having accepted my invitation. I, I've been a big fan of your work and the work you've done at, genetic, at the Genetic Literacy Project for many years, so uh, I, I would really love to help you promote it a little bit and so I, I hope you keep up with the good work and thank you again. Thank you very much. Glad to have been on your show. Okay, so take care. Bye-bye. If you appreciate my work, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash the dissenter. Thank you.